If you are new, we're in our third week of a series from Luke chapter 15. And if you have your Bibles, uh, an old school copy like I have, or maybe you've got a digital copy, turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Luke chapter 15, verse 25. And I, I just want to make a comment. For those of you who are new here, you may be wondering, why do you guys spend so much time in the Bible? Why, why do you guys care so much about what the Bible says? And uh, why is that such a central concern of yours? And uh, Well, there's a lot of reasons I could give for that. But let me, you know, the most important of which is that your eternal destiny depends on what the Bible says. But let me just give you something very practical that you can walk away with today. Something that just, it's, it's, it's focused on the here and the now. And here, here it is. I'll say it this way, that good psychology is good theology made personal. Good psychology is good theology made personal. Uh, in other words, if you want to know how to handle the practical issues of your world, things like guilt and obsessiveness and, and uh, uh, oversensitivity and a sense of restlessness and emptiness and marital discord and all those things that are just very practical issues, you've got to have good theology. You've got to learn to think about yourself and you've got to learn to think about God correctly, accurately, if you're going to think straight and if you're going to live accordingly. And the only way to get good theology so that you can live and think well you know, good psychology, the only way that you can get good theology is to study the Bible. That's why we study the Bible. Now, that doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the specific passage that we're going to look at today. I just wanted to make that point for those of you who may be wondering why we care so much about what the Bible says. Good psychology is good theology made personal. In addition, your eternal destiny depends on what the Bible says. Okay, Luke chapter 15. Just a brief review uh, of where we've been in this passage so far. Jesus is telling a story about two lost sons. Each of these sons represents a path that people take to find happiness and fulfillment. The younger son in the story takes the path of what we've been calling it expressive individualism. In other words, uh, he rejects traditional values of right and wrong, uh, believes that he should be able to determine right and wrong for himself. He goes off to the big city, wants to find himself there in the big city, and uh, he does what he thinks is right for him. And last week we studied him a little bit, looked at his life, and we saw the flaws in that particular philosophy of life, expressive individualism. The older son that we're going to look at today takes another, uh, the, the other approach to life, the one that is frankly dominant, uh, the dominant philosophy of religious people, and uh, we'll call it moralism. He's a, he's a moralist. He, he obeys. He, he believes in the traditional values that his parents raised him in. He believes in the traditional values of the community that he grew up in. And he obeys those. And he believes he's a good person as a result of obeying those things. Now, before we look into the passage specifically, there are two important things that I want you to understand about moralism. And what I've done in your, uh, in your program... Uh, you'll see that there's a little insert in there, and it's got the announcements on one side. If you flip that over to the other side, everybody do that for me, flip it over to the other side. What I've tried to do is just give you a little, um, just a little chart that's going to help you understand what I'm going to say here in just a moment, okay? Two things that I want you to understand about moralism. I've got to discipline myself here to not take too much time on this. Let me just make, here's the first point, and then you'll understand the second point when we look at that chart. Here's the first point. Uh, Moralism exists in both religious and secular forms. Okay? It exists in both religious as well as secular forms. Let me give you a couple of examples, uh, religious examples of moralism. Islam would be an example of moralism. Uh, Mormonism would be an example of moralism. Uh, Judaism would be an example. 
even some forms of Christianity. Some people who would claim to be Christians are really moralists. Okay, so that, those are some of the religious forms. Let me give you some of the secular forms of moralism. Uh, PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. That would be a secular moralist organization. Uh, vegans, people who are vegans, uh, would be secular moralists. Uh, Tony Robbins, you know the motivational speaker Tony Robbins, secular moralist. And there are many others. I just wanted to give you some examples. I want you to understand, moralists come in both religious as well as secular forms. Now, why do I say that? Okay, here's the second point I want you to understand. All moralists practice self-salvation. Okay? All moralists practice self-salvation. Now, here's where the little chart and your insert comes in, okay? What I've done is I've given you, on, on one side, I've given you three things that moralists would say, okay? And then I've contrasted that with Christianity, all right? Here's what moralists would say. First, believe in, and then you fill in the blank, whatever it is, Allah, uh, Buddha, uh, Jesus, success, uh, the ethical treatment of animals, whatever, okay? Believe in that. And then second is obey these rules, whatever their rules are, okay? Uh, the Quran, uh, the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment, uh, get baptized, uh, don't drink, don't smoke, uh, cut your hair, don't cut your hair, whatever the rule is, Okay? And then, as a result of those two things, then you'll be saved. That's what a moralist believes. Now, contrast that with Christianity that says this. Believe in Christ, and you will be saved. Then, as a result of what Christ has done for you, you will be changed internally, and then you will, over a period of time, obey. Now, do you see the startling difference between moralism and and Christianity? Moralism says that your obedience, your obedience, is the basis for your salvation. On the other hand, Christianity says it's Christ's work on the cross that is the basis for your salvation, and it's also the cause of your obedience. That's why Christianity is so different. It says focus on Christ. Christ has done it all. He's done all that needs to be done to save you. You don't have to add anything to that. And he changes you internally so that eventually that internal change will manifest itself externally in your life. It's all Christ's work. It's not yours. That's the difference between Christianity and moralism. So not only is moralism not the gospel, but if you think about it, I think you'll understand that moralism is a horrible, guilt-ridden, pressure-filled, insecure way to live because it creates this mental prison. Have I done enough? Because, see, you've got to obey. Have I done enough? And there is no objective way, there's no objective basis upon which you can claim that you're saved and speak peace to your heart, to your soul. There's no peace in moralism. When have you done enough? And what if you feel like you may, may not have done enough? What then? Christianity is altogether different than moralism. That's what I want you to get. I want you to understand that. And it's the only way that you can really experience peace. And now we're back to the idea of good psychology is good theology made personal. You want to experience peace in your soul? Good theology, understanding Christianity. That's how you experience peace. Okay, now we're going to pick up the reading. Okay, that was all free. I didn't charge you for any of that. Now I'm going to start charging you right here. Okay, we're going to pick up the reading in verse 25, Luke chapter 15, verse 25. And just just a reminder, the younger son 
uh, who rejected the father and wasted a third of the family fortune, has now come to his senses. He returns home to his father who represents God in this story. And the father lavishes his son with love and forgiveness. He accepts him back into the family, and he throws a big party for him. And let's pick up the reading now. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants, and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother uh, became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But with this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. Verse 31, My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again and he was lost and is found. Um, I told you a few weeks ago that we have, you know, most of you know this as the parable of the prodigal son, right? But we've kind of taken and given it a different name, the story of the missing son. Because there's a twist in this story that um, I think that, that title of the series better conveys. And here's the thing. Uh, it's a surprise twist. And next week... I'm going to tell you the twist, so make sure that you do not miss next week. And what we're going to do, if you don't come next week, we're not going to put it on the, on the City Church app. We're going to put it on the website, so you can't know unless you come. So you've got to be here, okay? All right, that's how that's going to work. Is that fair? Doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know why? Because it ain't your church. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, just kidding. Okay, here we go. Okay, older brother types. If you're like me, and I've got to tell you, I'm an older brother type. And I, I just want you to write this down because this is the main point of Jesus in the story. You might want to write this down somewhere. Here it is. It is possible to be more lost in moralism than it is in expressive individualism. It is possible to be more lost in moralism than expressive individualism. You know, we've been talking, the younger son represents the expressive individualism, uh, expressive individualist approach to life, you know, do his own thing, figure out what's right and wrong for himself, you know, all of that, wild living, all of that. And then the moralist is the guy who does, their, you know, he's, he does all, obeys the rules, he's, he's a good kid, good person, good citizen. Jesus is teaching in this story that it is possible to be more lost in moralism in being a good person than in expressive individualism. And I wonder if that surprises some of you this morning, that Jesus would teach something like that. Now, careful, understand. I'm not saying that Jesus is teaching that expressive individualism is a good philosophy either. Last week we talked about how flawed that philosophy is. Jesus is teaching that both philosophies are flawed, but he wants us to understand that it is possible to be more lost as a moralist than an expressive individualist. And I think for most people, that is shocking, and it completely turns our understanding of Christianity upside down. And I guess the question really in fact, I, I would imagine some of you are wondering this. How is it possible that you could be more lost in moralism by being a good person 
than by being an expressive individualist who goes out and does what he wants to do when he wants to do it, kind of runs his own life and determines what's right and wrong for himself. And, you know, this one squanders his money with prostitutes and all that. How could you be more lost as a moralist than you are as an expressive individualist? In fact, let's make it less abstract. Let's ask a very concrete question. How is it possible that you could be, let's just use this as an example, you could be a responsible husband and father, you could be a good church-going person, you could be a good citizen, you could work hard, you could give generously to philanthropic causes. How is it possible that you could be more lost doing that than, say, Lady Gaga or Lindsay Lohan or Mick Jagger? You know, and the, you know, he turned 70 years old. Anybody know that? He turned 70 years old like a couple weeks ago. And, you know, the hedonism that he's lived for 70 years. How could you be more lost as a moral guy than Mick Jagger? How could that be? Or uh, Wiz Khalifa. I just threw that name in because I wanted you to know that I'm down with rap. And I understand hip-hop. <laughs> and I know the language. I wanted you to know that. Well, okay, here's the, I want you to watch, I want you to watch uh, the answer that Jesus gives in this passage, because it's there. The answer to that question, how could you be more lost as a moralist than an expressive individualist? The answer is right here in this passage. And if you'll notice in this passage, what the oldest son is especially upset about in this story is the cost of the brother's restoration to the family. Look at verse 29 again. He answers his father, Okay, so the father went out to plead with him to come into the party. It's, it's cold out there. And his father says, don't be out of here alone. Come into the party. And he answers his father. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But, with this, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now understand, the fattened calf is just a symbol of restoration because the cost of the father's restoration of the son is far greater than just a fattened calf that he killed. Now listen to this. Last week I told you, I explained how an inheritance process worked back in that day. And the way it worked, if you guys will recall, is that the oldest son in a family, when the father died, would get twice the inheritance of anyone else in the family. Okay, so like if you had two sons, the oldest would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the youngest son, in this particular story, would get one-third of the inheritance. But, hear this, by restoring the youngest son to the family, the father has made the youngest son an heir again. And he's going to get, again, a third of the family's already diminished fortune And it's diminished because the youngest son went and squandered it. And so guess guess who ends up paying for the younger son's rebellion? Guess whose wealth that comes out of? It's the oldest son's money. He's like, what? And this is unconscionable to him. It's like, that's not fair. And I'll bet some of you feel the same way. Like, that's not fair. Shouldn't come out of the oldest son's wallet. What's the basis 
for the youngest son, for the oldest son's anger. Why is he so angry? What's the basis for it? Notice what he says again. Verse 29, first part of the verse 29, he says, He answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. What's the unspoken logical conclusion of that? It's this. Now you owe me. That's it. You owe me. You see, the, you, might, you might want to write this down somewhere in your Bible. The motive for his work has been to get leverage over his father. That's why he's done everything he's done. I want to get leverage over you. It's not because he loved the father. It's not because he just found joy and value in serving his father, whom he loved so much. He says, I've been slaving for you. Do you see? This is what is so insidious about moralism. The younger son's lostness in the story is pretty obvious and really, frankly, kind of unremarkable, really. It's the older son's lostness that is so devastatingly subtle. He's lost, doesn't understand that everything he's done, all of his obedience has been simply to get leverage over his father, to make his father owe him what he wants to get from his father. And in fact, it is so subtle, this kind of lostness, this oldest son kind of moralistic lostness is so subtle that you probably don't even see it in yourself, that you have it. And in fact, it's so subtle, the religious leaders that Jesus, to whom Jesus told this story, they didn't see it in themselves. And you probably don't see it in yourself either. But here's the thing. Jesus gives us, in this passage, he gives us five clues that help us be able to identify if we have this kind of older brother lostness in ourselves. And you might want to pay close attention to this. You might find that there's a little older brother or a lot of older brother in you. Let me give you, let me give you five clues from this passage um, that will help you identify if you have this older brother moralistic kind of lostness. Let's start with the most obvious Anger. Anger. That's the most obvious, right? We saw it in the story. Things didn't go his way, and he got furious with the father because he believed his father owed him. Now, let me ask you this question. How do you respond when life doesn't go your way? Like when you pray for something and it doesn't happen that way. Maybe it happens the exact opposite of the way that you prayed. How do you respond? Have you ever said something like this? God, I've done all of this for you, and now you let this happen? What was the point? What's the point of serving you if you're going to let this kind of stuff happen to me? Anybody here ever said something like that? I mean, maybe you didn't say it out loud, but you just said it to yourself. Anybody here ever said something like that? Do you hear it? Do you hear what's in that? It's like, it's like, God, I have rights. You owe me. And you see, the motive of the moralist is to control his or her world by their goodness, by their obedience. 
not because they delight in the good deed itself, not because they just found joy in doing whatever the good deed was. Moralists expect their goodness to pay off. And if it doesn't pay off, they're angry. Okay, second, very closely related, second clue. Maybe if you got a little of this, you may have some moralist in you. Here it is, joylessness, joylessness. Do you notice? Older brother, here's the music. And Baptists, I am so sorry. Brace yourself. Jesus says dancing along with music. I, you know, I did, it was Jesus who said it, not me. Older brother, here's the music, and, and, he, and he knows there's dancing going on. And as, as, he, as we've already noted, he gets very angry, and he says what he's feeling in this moment. He says, I've been slaving away for you all of these years. Not a lot of joy enslaving away, right? Interesting expression that he uses. One of the marks of moralism is a joyless, fear-based compliance rather than a joyful, heartfelt obedience that's motivated by love. Let me tell you something. Something I've noticed. 23 years of ministry. Here's something I've noticed. Some of the people who tell me that they are the most committed Christians... You know, look, if you're in ministry, one of the things that happens is just part of the occupation. There are some people who want you to know how committed they are as Christians. And they, they, I mean, they want to tell you and they want you to know. Some of the people who tell me the most committed Christians are the most joyless people that I have ever met. Uh, They look haggard and they're kind of bland and colorless and no personality. They're often very quick to get angry. They don't have a sense of humor. One, one, year, I, I, one year I had this lady get really angry at me because I told a joke on Easter Sunday and she just felt like, man, there is, you should not joke on Easter Sunday. And I was, I was like, are you kidding me? Easter Sunday? For crying out loud, if you're not going to joke, if you're, if you're not going to joke on Easter Sunday, when are you going to joke? Christ was resurrected from the dead. He conquered death. If you're not going to laugh on Easter, when? And I could have filled in the blank, but when are you going to laugh? And did you notice that in this story, all the laughter is inside the party, which is exactly where the older brother isn't. It's fascinating. The older brother takes no joy in what his father takes joy in. He just obeys because he has to, and he's afraid of the consequences if he doesn't. I want you to listen to this. Understand this. Morality based in fear does nothing to eradicate the fundamental cause of evil in the world. You know what the fundamental cause of evil in the world is? It's the radical self-centeredness of the human heart. Moralism... Morality based in fear does nothing to eradicate the radical self-centeredness of the human heart. In fact, if anything, it deepens its roots in the soul because you're simply obeying for your own benefit, but you think you're so good because you're doing it. It just deepens those roots of radical self-centeredness in the human heart. And this is why Jesus teaches that moralism is a flawed philosophy too. Joylessness. Maybe you've got a little of that in you. I don't know. Here's a third one. If you, it, man, you might be an older brother type if you have this. 
a more critical eye toward other people than yourself. It's one of the characteristics of moralism. Look at verse 30. Uh, Verse 30. He says, uh, the older son, he's comparing himself. He says, but when this son of yours, (laughs) notice it's not his brother, but when this son of yours, uh, this is what Amy says to me sometimes whenever our kids do something wrong, when this son of yours, um, when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Um, there's this competitive comparison. I'm better than him because he blank, fill in the blank. I'm better than you because you fill in the blank. And in this case, it's because he's better than his younger son, uh, excuse me, his younger brother, because his younger brother squandered the wealth with prostitutes. Um, this is how most older brothers get their identity their sense of identity is by comparison. But here's the problem. Which one of these, which one of these did Christ have to die for more? The younger son's use of prostitutes or the older son's disrespect of his father in public? Oh. Which one did Christ have to die for more? And, of course, the answer to that is neither. He died for them both equally. But did you notice that the oldest son seems to be completely unaware that there's any problem with disrespecting his father here in this public setting? Seems blind to his own issue here, doesn't he? He's got a more critical eye toward other people than he does to himself. Any of you struggle with that? You just tend to be a little more critical of other people than you are, than you are of yourself. If you, if you have that tendency, you might be a moralist. Here's a, here's a fourth one. Here's a fourth clue. You might be a moralist if um, you have a lust for recognition. Lust for recognition. Um, do you notice he says in the text, he says, you never gave me a young goat, so what? So I could celebrate with my friends. He wants all the friends to see it. Now we're getting somewhere. And I wonder if you ever find yourself doing things in public that you wouldn't normally do in private for recognition. Ever find that in yourself? guy by the name of G. Timothy Johnson uh, wrote this. I want to put it up here on the screen so that you can read it. He says, here's a little rule that I have come to believe. The more dramatic and pious we become about our faith, the more likely it is that we're trying to please the gods of this earth, sometimes disguised in religious robes, rather than the one true and holy God. Jesus couldn't stomach publicly sanctimonious displays of religiosity. He preferred those whose actions spoke for their faith. Here's one of the things that I hope you notice uh, about City Church is that we don't use a lot of overly pious language here in our church. This is, I tell you something, I have been criticized over the years of ministry sometimes for this, that I don't use enough spiritual overly pious language. But I don't do it for this reason. And it's that I find when I rely on a lot of overly spiritual pious language that sometimes it makes me think I'm more spiritual than I really am but also that maybe by using a lot of that language, I'm trying to convey the message to people that I'm really spiritual more than it really, more than my heart really reflects that, right? 
And so at City Church, we're not going to use, we don't use, and we're not going to use a whole lot of that real pious, spiritual language that you might hear in other places. Because sometimes it can be about just a lust for recognition, telling people how spiritual you are. Okay, here's a fifth one. It, I want to just tell you guys uh, just a little backstory on this. I just I wasn't going to use it because I thought ah, I don't have time to use it, so I'm not I'm not going to put that one in. And then I I, I was like I got to put this in because it's so important. And I went back and I cut a bunch of stuff out of my talk so that I could make sure that I added this to you guys. So you don't even know all the good stuff that you haven't heard because I had to cut it out. Here it is, the fifth one. You might if you tend to be a moralist, you might see this in yourself. Increasing isolation. Increasing isolation. Now, did you see it in this passage? Twice. Here it is. Jesus says, Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field, right? Because that was when the party was going on inside. The older son was where? Out in the field. And then Jesus says, near the end of the story, he says, He became angry and he refused to go into the party. The more moralistic a person gets, the fewer people fit into his or her box of expectations. And that person can become isolated, and they become isolated from other people, and they also become isolated from the culture at large. Does that sound like any churches that you've ever heard of, been a part of, known? They become isolated from the culture at large. That can happen to individuals, and it can happen to churches as well. Increasing isolation, that's one of the characteristics of moralism. I wonder, do you see any of those five traits in you? If you do, you might be a little bit or maybe a whole lot of a moralist, like the older brother in this story. Three groups that need this passage of Scripture, and I'm going to just mention these to you in closing. The first is the older brothers in the room. And there are, undoubtedly are some older brothers here in the room. People who are moralists. Um, you're good people. And nobody would debate that. Like you're good folk. The problem is that you're counting on your goodness to earn you eternal life. And Jesus tells this story because he wants to get you to take a good close look at yourself in the mirror and recognize that you are lost in your moralism. Because your moralism is nothing more than a desire to get leverage over God and to control your world with how good you are. And let's be honest about something. Uh, Churches are filled with angry, joyless, critical, isolated moralists. And Jesus ends this story with the older brother out in the cold, outside of the party, outside of the feast, because Jesus realized that very few moralists, very few of the religious people who were there when Jesus told the story were going to accept the idea. They were going to totally reject this. They couldn't possibly be more lost in their moralism than the younger brother in the story. But you get to write your own ending to the story. Does the older brother come in to the party or not? Which is it? And if you're an older brother type, you get to write your own ending. Are you coming in to the party with the rest of us? Are you going to stay out in the cold, counting on your goodness, your moralism, and just be out there all angry and cold. 
Which is it going to be for you? Second group of people that need to hear this story are the younger brothers in the room. And the younger brothers, you, you younger brother types, you need to hear this story because let's be honest about something, younger brother types. You have used uh, older brothers as an excuse to abandon Christianity. Um, you've said, oh, the problem with Christianity, the problem with religion is all those angry, joyless, judgmental, fundamental older brother types. And frankly, Jesus agrees with you. That is one of the problems. But what you need to see is that Jesus condemns that moralistic older brother kind of Christianity. And what he teaches is that the gospel is very different than moralism. And that's what I told you at the beginning of this at the beginning of this talk, is that the gospel and moralism are very different. Moralism is all about you and your own works, and Christianity says there's a completely different way. There's a third way. It's not expressive individualism, and it's not moralism. There's a third way. It's called Christianity, and it's based on what Christ did on the cross, not you, not you at all. And it fills you, because he changes you from the inside out, it fills you with a joy and a love and a passion for life. And Jesus wants you to see that, and he wants you to understand what you've seen in those older brother types that you've rejected, and you've said Christianity must be that, I don't want it. Jesus says, no, that's not what Christianity is. You need to see that, younger brothers. And there's a third group that need to see this passage, and it's some of, some of you are Christ followers. You, I, I, I'm like this. Some of, you, some of you are genuine Christ followers, but you are older brother-ish. And perhaps you need to see some of the traits of the older brother in your own life and just get real honest about that. I hope what all of you discover here at City Church is that we make a clear distinction as a church between the gospel and religious moralism. If you've ever been out on our website, there's a little section you can click on. It says, Visit. This is the international sign for clicking on something on the website. You can click on it, and it, sa- it, says, vi- it says visit, and, it, and there's this part that talks about who's welcome. And it just, it's like everybody's, and we go through who everybody is that could possibly be welcome at our church. And, it, and it's basically everyone is welcome. Why? Why is everybody welcome? It's because we believe that everyone is lost. Both the morally good and the morally bad, everyone's lost. And everyone needs Christ. That's why everybody's welcome. And once a person believes in Christ's work on the cross and not their own work and not, and not their own goodness and all of that, once a person believes in Christ's work on the cross and not their own, and, and as they keep reminding themselves, keep preaching that to themselves, every day they wake up, they keep preaching to themselves, I am saved, I am accepted by Christ's work on the cross, nothing I do can save me. I am saved by what Jesus did on the cross. If they keep reminding themselves of that, everything changes in you. And it will result over time in a life of great beauty and impact. Over time, it doesn't happen instantly. Over time, because of the change Christ makes in you, over time, it will result in a life of great beauty and impact. That's why our slogan as a church is, this, the cross, changes everything. Would you bow your heads with me?